I've had numerous friends in the last month get laid off. All friends of mine that are my age or older. I'm 46 years old. So there's definitely a little bit of fear and anxiety about interviewing at companies, especially in the, here in the Bay Area. So that was today's guest, Matt Curtis, reflecting on the current landscape of what I would probably call like the tech layoff bloodbath. He's essentially a Silicon Valley native who started his career in tech about 25 years ago. Matt takes us back to the glory days of the dot-com bubble when he says that you basically just needed a pulse to get a job in tech. So times have changed a bit. Matt will share how he thinks that shifts in the way we work has actually made it a little bit more challenging for older workers. We'll discuss that difficult path that might be ahead of individual contributors who actually don't want that promotion in terms of their ability to stay in their career. We also try our hand at answering this question. Why do tech employers disproportionately hire younger people? Matt thinks it may have something more to do with stages in life rather than ages in life, some persistent myths about older people, and a little something he likes to call spreadsheet math. I definitely think he could be onto something there. You're listening to It Gets Late Early, a show about the experience of getting older in the tech industry. I'm your host, Maureen Wiley-Clough. Let's dive in. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for coming and joining It Gets Late Early. I'm so happy to have you here. Greetings. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Really pumped to get your perspective. So tell me, Matt, what's your thought on the workforce in tech right now as as far as it comes to age diversity and inclusion? I've had numerous friends in the last month get laid off. All friends of mine that are my age or older. I'm 46 years old. So there's definitely a little bit of fear and anxiety about interviewing at companies, especially in the, here in the Bay Area. I have some friends that are in the Bay Area. It's definitely more of an existential threat for them than it is for friends that are outside of the Bay Area, not in high tech, kind of low tech. So it's a real issue. How would you describe the difference between high tech and low tech? And also curious if you could expound a little bit more on the difference between working in the Bay Area and outside of it, your perspective on that. Sure. No, I graduated in the in the dot com boom, and all you had to show was a pulse, and you were going to find multiple job offers. So, sounds nice. You know, over the last twenty five years, that's what it's been. Basically, you know, you see a you know progressively younger and younger population, both natives as well as people coming in from all around the world, and it's definitely a different environment than almost any other workplace at least in the country that I've seen, you know, a lot of smart folks with big degrees and hyper competitive to go work for the Facebooks and the Apples. And, and then the competition that all the, the non brand name companies have to deal with trying to recruit those same, those same rock stars. So it's definitely hyper competitive. There's definitely an ageism here in the Bay area more than I've seen in other, in other industries. So tell me a little bit about that. So so you're saying back in the good old days, it seemed all you needed was a pulse to get in the door at these tech companies, right? And, and so what way. you're <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So there's a huge demand for workers and you felt at that at that age, I mean, I guess you were younger back then, right? So you felt bit. like you could you could get in the door there. Um maybe can you expand a little bit more about why you think the ageism issue is worse today than it was? I mean, back then, I guess tech was young too, <laughs> but the tech itself is not that old, right? But curious to hear a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, you're talking 25 years of the population aging, those that entered yeah. the workforce around the time I did. And unless they 
became rich from their stock options. And even those that did stuck around to get into VC or to go run some of these companies. The workforce is definitely aging. And we have, you know, kids coming out of college with pretty advanced degrees. And again, people coming from all around the world to come yeah. work in Silicon Valley. So definitely that uh, that triangle we've talked about is definitely inverting on the uh, on the age on the age of workforce. Yeah. And do you think that by virtue of the fact, so, so what we're talking about here is that the workforce is actually soon going to invert the period pyramids like this at this at this point in time. So we have a lot of young people at the bottom of the pyramid, more supply of young people, and that's shortly about to flip over and, and we'll have a considerably older workforce at play. So do you think some of the ageism issues will be maybe solved by having to actually look at older workers? Or do you sense that there's still going to be that preference? If you if you were going to go make a, a, a sort of judgment call on what was going to happen and a prediction. What would you say? I don't know about a prediction, but when you think about someone, say, in their in their mid forties or fifties, they've become more and more senior. So there's less and less positions for them, exponentially less than those in the bottom or in the middle starting off their career. So there's just less seats at the table for a experienced, smart, proven workforce. You know, it's a musical chairs almost. Absolutely. And you know, I think one thing that you just said there is really important. And that's the concept of as you become more senior in an organization, you rise through the ranks, you, you keep on climbing that corporate ladder. And I want to actually talk about that for a second, because I'd love to hear your perspective on why people do that, right? And whether obviously everybody is their own individual experience, and they have their own specific set of ambition and expectations and whatnot, and as well as other sort of uh, items in their lives that would require that they pursue one path or another. But I'm curious if you think a lot of people have been trying to climb that corporate ladder and trying to get higher and higher in the organization as sort of like self-preservation, right? So thinking if I don't continue moving up this chain, I might be perceived as less valuable or more stagnant. I've, for example, seen people tell me about this uh, this topic at Amazon, for example, and other large tech companies where if people are at a specific level, especially if it's a sort of a lower level manager level or an independent contributor level, and they're there for quite some time, they might be great at their jobs, right? But they're seen as kind of treading water and not like looking to grow through the organization. And they're seen in some cases as really not as desirable to have on the team. So I'm curious what your thoughts are around like how many people actually want to keep climbing that ladder and how many of them are doing it as, as a self-defense mechanism that counts the possibility of becoming rendered obsolete over time. I mean, my thought would be that a good portion of people just want to do their nine to five. They want to have their life. They want to have their family and their kids. So as they get older, they get married, they have those children. Life just becomes about the family and not, you know, being, you, know, you start off with a single individual contributor and then you become married, whether you become a mid-level manager or you stay at that individual contributor level and you're accruing every year, you're making a little bit more money, a little bit more money. And then it's a lot easier to replace you with someone younger, hungrier, that isn't tethered by just family. I can say that as a, as a husband and father of two kids and three cats and two rabbits, you know, it's just <laughs> a full house life. there, man. It's a very full, a very full house. So that and you, it gets exacerbated with, you know, a work from home hiring outside of the Bay area. All of a sudden you're not just competing with those that can drive into the location, but those around the country, around the world, you're it's just right. more and more hyper competitive. So when you look at apples to apples, someone like myself 
may you know require a higher salary than someone that is in their 20s or 30s that you know on paper at least have the same skill set so it's you know, I think you either work your way up into a less and less positions available for a higher management position or you risk being you know outdated yeah no, it's definitely been a fear of mine too and I've heard it really behind the scenes, very few people, as you can imagine, are very willing to talk about this very openly, who've been in the room where those decisions have been made. Most people are wise enough to actually not put this in writing anywhere. But these conversations (laughs) are being had at the hiring manager level and within the HR departments, right? It's okay, we've got this specific goal that we have, and we have this person who's coming in at X salary. What are they really doing? If the job responsibilities could be potentially done by someone with a lot less experience with less uh, less of an encumbering salary sort of range like there's that conversation taking place and so i look for example at the layoffs that are happening right now and i'm pretty scared that they might actually be really falling disproportionately on the side of the older and more experienced workers in tech in large part because there is that factor of the higher the longer you're employed with these companies the more you're paid right and the higher experience that you are able to achieve outside of the company prior to joining one, you are going to have that sort of tantamount salary. And it, it gets higher and higher over time, necessarily, as you get more experience, you want more responsibilities, you want to be rewarded for that. And then, of course, you do have all those responsibilities at home that you mentioned that people of a younger generation just don't yet, right? Yeah, I don't know if I'm stealing this term from someone else, but I kind of call that spreadsheet math. You're looking at what does employee number one make and earn and what's number employee number two make earn what their productivity is and it's really attractive to cut you know to cut a more senior person but you need to understand that 360 degree view of what they do that 80 20 rule is definitely true so that's not necessarily an ageist thing but i can tell you in my experience when i look at who has the strongest work ethic there is there's an age ageism involved but it's not to the benefit of the younger worker. The hardest people, hardest working people I know are those that have been there, been around, and when they find the right company, the right job, they realize, wow, this is not an easy thing to find. It's like a good relationship. Everyone's in relationships. Everyone has a job for all intents and purposes, but how many of them are great? So when you find that great fit with the right boss and the right company, you go, I'm taking my shot. And that usually isn't appreciated by someone in their first or second job. I know it. Absolutely. Totally agree with you on that. And and also you add to that fact that the younger generation and of which I am a part, I should mention, uh, still for now, <laughs> um, we are known to switch jobs very frequently. And so while there might be uh, an entrenched ageism or a feeling like we want younger people on our workforce, the reality is they're more likely to leave organizations. So as you pointed out, older, more experienced workers who join organizations that they love, they want to stay. They actually are more loyal. They have longer tenure over time, which is yeah, great. Our, right? our parents that- grew up with one career, one company. Exactly. My parents, yeah. My parents can't even understand. They're like, <laughs> wait, didn't you have a new job like last year? I don't understand. Like they, they are so confused by the way in which people approach the job market today. It's just a completely different space. And mm. uh, there's there's not the, the pension mentality, right? That's gone. It's, it's really almost like a gig economy, right? Where everybody has their little stint here, their little stint there. Everybody is every man for him or herself, right? And mm-hmm. so that's just kind of what we're working with now. But interestingly, it does appear that the more experienced you are in the workforce, the longer you tend to stay in each role that you have. And so 
that's something I feel they really should be thinking about when they're making hiring decisions, right? Um, it's just, or frankly, they should be thinking about none of it because it should just be an equal playing field. But because we all know it's not, I, I wish that that would come into factor for, for some people when they're going through this, uh, this process, interviewing a bunch of people across a variety of different roles and experience levels, right? Mm-hmm. That'd be nice. Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> if they did that. It'd be, nice. be cool. Um, so you've, you've obviously seen ageism throughout your career in Silicon Valley and beyond. And I'm curious if you can speak, obviously not naming names, but if you can speak about any specific situations that you saw unfold. More anecdotal stories with, with my friends and, and hearing the trials and tribulations that they've had to go through over the last really decade as I would kind of get older and older colleagues and friends. Um, it's just so funny because and I'd say almost all of my anecdotal experiences, especially over the last, you know, five or six years, it's been the older employees, the ones where your first reaction is, damn, they're old. And then you get to know them. And you're like, damn, he's good. There's a reason we hired him. It's it's amazing. It's like almost the anecdote to these this thought that the older person's gonna be be less productive, be less innovative they may be a little less prone to adopt the latest and greatest gadgets and technologies, but a lot of that's fluff anyways. So sometimes doing what you've been doing for a long time and doing it really, really well, you can more than make up for the productivity and not using the latest Zapier app with some cool widget that goes on some cool iPad that you take to a conference. So Couldn't agree more. But, you know, I think what would be really helpful and what I'm hoping that this platform starts to, to get towards an answer on is, is how you quantify, actually quantify the value of experienced workers in an organization, right? So obviously companies are not going to, out of philanthropic reasons, decide they suddenly want to make sure that older people have the same ability to retain jobs that younger people do if they perceive them to be less productive, right? Uh, They're not going to do anything out of philanthropic reasons, right? They're going to do something when they recognize that their sole purpose, which is to create shareholder value, is actually harmed if they don't have an intergenerational workforce in play. So what I would love to understand is, you know, your perspective on how exactly can companies understand the value of experience? Like what can we, as people who are getting older in the tech industry do to showcase what the strengths that we have as as by virtue of actually having done these jobs at a variety of places over a lengthier career how can we quantify that and and really showcase it and be proud of it well i think we're talking if we talk about which types of careers right because there's you know straight up coding tech engineering and then there's you know on the other side of the spectrum you know more of the soft skills the managerial skills the people skills and there's that you know, intersection that you're going to find. So if you're, if you're on the younger side of the workforce and you're looking to create some longevity in your career, you want to have more arrows in your quiver. You don't want to just be a coder because you're going to, you know, how much longer before someone younger with more, you know, the latest and greatest education is just going to run you out of the business. So become a little bit more diversified in your skill sets and the types of work you do, the type of cross-functional work. I think that could increase your longevity so that, I have I know friends that are in management positions that started off as engineers and their experience and their perspective is invaluable. They wouldn't have that position if they didn't have those skills, but they matured as a as a, a contributor to their companies to be able to expand, grow, change positions. Sometimes it's an engineer going to product management, sometimes it's product management going to marketing, over to sales. So having that well 
being a bit diversified, I think helps the longevity of your career so that you're, they're hiring you for your, your breadth of experience. You may be the best coder, but how long is that going to keep you in that either individual contributor position? How do you become a manager of the engineering or how do you become the CEO of the company? So I think, I just can't imagine when I think of the last few companies I work for, including the one I work for now of that diversity of skill sets, experience, and even age is a pretty wide range on our, on our management team. Um, That's awesome. And I think it helps the company just having that balance. You don't want to have all of X. I can't imagine working, 100%. working in a company and they wouldn't want me to work in that company or working for a, a tech company that only had 25 year olds across the board. That's kind of one dimensional for the company. Couldn't agree more. And everybody knows all the studies out there that prove that more diverse teams produce better outcomes, more innovation, more results, et cetera. So we all know that. And yet it's so interesting how so many companies, and I would say probably probably verging more or weighted more on sort of the small startup side, tend to have that specific sort of group think, right? That that enables a, a company full of 25 year olds, right? And it seems well, they recruit from the pool, right? That, that person exactly. that raised the money came with a great idea. Great. Let me go ask my friends. Let me do the networking. Exactly. And there's your little pool as opposed to grabbing someone from a different geography, different race, different sex, just mixing exactly. up a little bit. Then you start getting all different types of pools. And then you get the best talent depending on the position that you're looking for. Exactly. And so, and I don't think that's malicious, right? I think it's just you no, know, it's in the your, environment. It's your you group know, of friends. <laughs> it, it makes sense. And, you know, it's funny though, because I, I have been a candidate as a, you know, recently as just this last couple of weeks, right. Uh, looking at tech jobs. And I, it's so funny, even though you'll see, you'll see employees that run the spectrum of age ranges for sure at these companies. Sometimes you'll hear things that just like, kind of blow your mind. For example, I was told in an interview that one reason someone joined this company to which I was applying was literally, and I quote, to be around people my age that I want to get a beer with after work. Mind you, this person was at least 13, 14, 15 years younger than I am. I was like, cool, cool. All right. So what, how, okay. Right. And, and I think right now I'm like, okay, I, I could do that. You know, I'm 40. I, this is all right. But am I going to feel that way in 10 years? And how's that going to go? Right. And, and so you also see in some of these organizations, yes, they do technically have a range of people in terms of the age, age bands, but the people who are older tend to be concentrated at the top. Right. And some of that's natural, right. You keep on growing your career, you move up the ladder, so on and so forth. Like I get that, but I also recognize that people like say, I don't want to do that. Say I don't have the ambition to keep on growing in my career in the sense that I want to be a people manager or I want to own a business unit. Maybe that maybe that's the route I'd like to go. Do I have the same protection to continue on in an individual contributor role or like lower level role in an organization when the mindset of a lot of people around there is, oh, I want to find people who are like me and want to go get a beer, right? Uh, so that's what that's what kind of freaks well, me Maureen, out. Maureen, you have to remember things. that person was very, very lonely is looking for friends. I know. And friends with, with no girls for them. I'm, well, that was actually a woman who said that. So at least there's that. But right. I was just cracking up. So I was like, wow. I mean, how many people are going to see the literature that's written about the culture, right? At this company, how many people are going to see the videos that are put out by corporate? Like, here's who we are. And it's like, just a wash and mostly white people under 30. Like, 
how am I in 10 years going to want to join that company? Right. And what are you, it's not, not your exactly. criteria. <laughs> I'm not. And it's just, I feel like we need to get better as organizations at like really dissecting what we're putting out there into the public sphere about who we are, unless that's just actually who we are and we're okay with it. Right. And, and maybe that's very much just what it is. But my, my concern is that if these companies don't mature along with the workforce, like what place will someone like me have if I don't want to be the VP of such and such or the C of such and such? That's what that's what really gives me pause and makes me wonder, like, am I in the right industry? <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah, it can be a little scary. You just think about the number of jobs for someone my age at the level I'm at. And then you compare that to someone in their 20s. There's just... Right? There's a... There's a glut of jobs. The the right? supply is not making up meeting the demand. Exactly. The and if you're going positions. up and say you want to down level, right? Because there aren't as many jobs for directors at, you know, X company or any company, right? Because mm-hmm. necessarily there is a supply and demand thing. Then you would be down leveling and competing with people possibly half your age to do the same job. And so Willing your salary for less salary too. <laughs> exactly. And yes, you have a lot more experience. You have a breadth of experience above and beyond what this person has because you've been in a workforce for so much longer. But when you say spreadsheet math, how is that going to translate, right? When someone is reviewing your job application and they see that you have all this experience, they might think, great. And then you get to salary discussion and, you know, this random kid who's half your age will take, you know, your, your job for 50K less. How do you compete with that? Like, yeah. I think that's, my job is a little bit easier because mine's very measured by revenue. But my friends that are in customer success or marketing, it's hard. That spreadsheet math is a lot harder for them to to justify a, a much higher salary, even though you know they're worth it. If you just took the time to look at what they do, I know because I know what they do. But it's real easy for someone on the you know the PE firm or the executive management level that may don't have that granular view. They go, oh yeah, we're going to save money here. We really need to cut costs. But it bites you in the butt, you know, six, 12 <laughs> plus months later. It really does. Yeah. You get what you pay for, right? And people are going to have to learn that the hard way. Yeah. Yeah. So, or not. <laughs> or not. And then they'll keep making the same mistakes. You see this in the Bay Area right now. How many damn layoffs are these big tech companies going to have? It's like a virus. Are they yeah. doing it because they need to? Or are they doing it because, you know, their supposed competition or another peer company? Oof, they laid off people. We must do that too. That was the same craziness of the hiring. I mean, how much hiring wouldn't happen in the pandemic? We have to hire people. Why? I don't know. We have to hire people. (laughs) Exactly. And and I think what kills me too is is a lot of it is groupthink, right? And it's this contagion of, oh, well, this company did it, thereby I should too. Um, And it seems like kind of knee-jerk to me because there seem to be a lot of other measures that could be adopted prior to just slashing jobs, right? I'll throw one out. Maybe... CEOs should cut their pay a little bit. That'd be cool. Or maybe we could think about letting people have a, you know, across the workforce pay cut, right? Maybe versus people, their dear colleagues, their family losing their jobs, right? Like there are other ways to go about this. And this seems frankly, really lazy to me. And it's, it's fascinating too, because there, there seemed to be a very huge, uh, level of, there seems to be a huge level of disparity between the way in which these companies are going about actually putting these layoff lists together. And I would do anything to get my hands on the demographic data 
of the layoffs themselves and how they actually came up with the methodology by which they're going to figure out who stays and who goes. And yeah, I know the liability company, across the board, I bet you, oh, you could really peel back that onion. It would be fascinating, but I know one huge tech company that you definitely know that I cannot reveal. One person who actually was recently in their reduction in force told me a story about how they actually did the layoffs there. And it was really harrowing. It was like, okay, people who were managers who had people that they had to actually get rid of on their teams were given the heads up of 90 minutes because they were afraid of press leaks. So an email comes into people managers, you have 90 minutes and 90 minutes, I need you to cut X number, depending on whatever role there was and whoever decided, I don't know. Can you even imagine how that would be in terms of actually deciding who stays, who goes? I mean, the biases that would come in, like all the, I mean, nepotism, this is my buddy. Uh, oh, this person's brand new. We don't know. You know all the things that would come up that would basically make sure that this this uh, decision was completely unfair. And even if it had included like job performance and and reviews and whatnot, that, those are subjective too, but at least that would have been better. So these people were given just this tiny fraction of time to make these decisions that had really lasting outcomes on the people uh, who were impacted, right? And it just seems to me like such a crazy way to do these sorts of huge decisions as a company that would open you up to so much liability, right? That like seems morally wrong. It seems right? like just from a, a an HR perspective of keeping the best employees and retaining them, that just scares even the best employees. Like that's how they make their decisions. And right? I know I'm great. Though well, they clearly don't know who's great because I yeah. just saw them cut Bob and Bob was fantastic. Exactly. But whatever. That's interesting. <sighs> 90 minutes. I can't make any great decisions. Yeah. I can't make me the best either. decisions in 90 minutes. <laughs> I can make a decision, but give me right. three days. <laughs> especially it if it's important nice. like someone's livelihood and i understand that there's a whole lot of handwriting and emotional distress that accompanies any sort of leak of an in, impending layoff like i get that i get that there's a sanity to to try to uh, to th th that they're trying to save sanity of employees and try to keep morale as high as possible in a time when that's nearly impossible to keep a high morale but at what cost right at the cost of having such incredibly biased decisions take place in a fragment of a couple hours. I mean, how, who, who thought this was a good idea, right? Like, I just, I can't believe it. And are there any repercussions therein? Uh, my friend shared well, There'll be me, lawsuits out of it, I guarantee I mean, you. I mean, I frankly hope so. But also a lot of the, the severance agreements that you have to sign include an NDA, and they also include the inability to do anything that then go through mediation. And that's also that you can actually secure your final severance pay payouts. And people need that. And not yeah. everybody is well-versed Not versed the best time to negotiate rent. when, you're, when no. you're just freaking out. Like, you just I just got want laid to pay off. my rent, right? I want to yeah. pay my mortgage. I want to feed my kids, whatever it is, right? You're not in an empowered scenario. Well, it but also feels like the, the, the sky is falling when you're part of the big laugh. Oh my gosh, this company is laying off people. Who else is going to be laying people off? How am I going to go and compete in this job market Absolutely. when... 5% of my entire company has got laid off. That's the scariest yeah. time ever. It sucks. And it really rocks you, right? And I, I feel so much for, for folks who've been impacted. And I, I guess technically I was too, but um, that's neither here nor there. But I, I really, what, what was upsetting too about the story that my friend told me was that it ended up when the dust had settled and they saw who stayed and who went, it ended up being almost exclusively women and very, very high performing, incredibly good women who were let go from this one specific team, and then a couple low-performing men. And it's like, huh, 
okay, how did that happen? Like that system was really messed up. If it just well, who made the decisions, <laughs> right? Exactly. Who made the decisions? And is it this guy saving his friends and, you know, or this girl saving her friend? Who knows? Right. It's just, it, it just lets the, the error that can seep into that kind of a decision and a methodology or process is just stunning. And I think about the, I mean, <laughs> The optics of that are so freaking bad. Are you kidding me? Like, how could they? How much do you think of that yeah. was the bias of, you know, the man is the the primary, you know, breadwinner for a family. And when a Great woman's question. working more often than not, it's, well, I don't know if it's more often than not, but oftentimes it's the secondary. And if she loses her job, right? she can go back home and the husband's still there versus yeah. how often is it the reverse? Because in, in most yep. of my marriage, my wife's made more money than me. So yeah. Awesome. Good for you. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My husband would be thrilled. Yeah. It's, um, I think that's absolutely in play. I mean, it, that's all behind the scenes, right? And that's all when you let a human, right, make these decisions, there, there is all sorts of opportunity for bias to seep in. And again, it's not necessarily malicious, but these assumptions, these stereotypes do probably really drive some of these decisions, right? And if there is that impression that, you know, this person has a, whether they know it to be true or not, this person has a spouse at home who is actually collecting a paycheck and that paycheck's probably higher than the one she's getting here. I could absolutely see that coming in versus, oh man, this is, this is Frank's job. He's the breadwinner. I know his wife stays at home or what have you. Absolutely. And again, I don't necessarily think it's nefarious. Like I don't think people are sitting around plotting about how to make things worse for people. Right. But these things seep into your conscious, subconscious. They 100% do. And it's it's sad because you know some of these companies have been out there touting their diversity, equity, and inclusion statistics. And I'd be shocked. I mean, well, I, I would love, let me put it this way. I would love to see the DEI statistics after the layoffs and see if they are similar to the ones that have been publicly celebrated by these companies. I would love to see that. Quick question for you, Matt, um, and I know we're close to time, but um, I am curious if you had to put your finger on what really the root of Silicon Valley's obsession with youth is, what would you say? The, late, the next person is going to be the coming of Jesus in tech, and they're waiting for the next person, this genius that's going to arise from the ashes of the education system and come and develop the next thing. We just need to make sure we, we touch that person first. As opposed the tech to, gods. I mean, come on, most of the time, isn't it like, maybe I'm wrong. Most of the time that next successful company is from founders that failed, failed fast, failed again. And then they learned from it and they learned from it. It wasn't the first thing they did. I don't think I've ever worked for a successful company where it was the founding people and they were, you know, right out of college and they developed that. It was, it was not that. <laughs> so Brilliantly I think that's the obsession. Put. They're, it's, they're trying to play the lottery. Put. They're trying to play the lottery. Yeah. And I don't but play it's the interesting because they're placing they're placing their chips predominantly on people who are it seems young and and as you just said the outcomes are better for founders who actually are older and have more experience than they are for outcomes uh, for people who are you know in their twenties coming at, right out of college maybe you know obviously there's a Bill Gates here and there and a Mark Zuckerberg here and there right but uh, it's interesting that that these are the people trope, that take other people's technology then build their own or. <laughs> Oh, you weren't going there. Okay, sorry, sorry. Oh yeah. Oh, there's that too. But um, <laughs> details. Yeah, that's another another topic. But, that's more of a bill you know, thing than a market. It's thing. more of a yeah, exactly. Ooh, he went to my he went to my high school. I actually took as few classes in the Allen Gates building as humanly possible because that wow. was not my strength. Oh, that's why yeah. he became so you know famous. He went to the Gates School. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm telling you, it's like, it's just, it blows my mind. You know, I'm thinking of Sam Bankman Freed and how he was able to just roll out of bed looking like he did. And it was actually constructed. It was, it was a ruse. It was a, a ploy to get people to pay attention to him because he fit that prototype, right? He looked like a Zuckerberg character, right? So he's yep. playing to the crowd. Versus when he went into the courtroom and he's in a suit and tie. He knows exactly what he's doing. I have to hat tip to him. But I'm like, how did it become this way? That we're like, you know what we want? We want to find a guy who looks like he rolled out of bed and doesn't give a shit. Let's give him millions of dollars. It sounds like a sociopath to me. (laughs) It's just, why? I just, I'm trying to understand what it is. Diversifying their portfolio, right? Your VC company, like, you know, that some, you know, it's gonna, there's gonna be some combination of a mature company or mature founders that have failed and then stuck with it and refined it. And there's going to be some of the Mark Zuckerbergs out of college that have a fantastical idea and, you know, probably just hedging their bets. Yeah. But you just don't want to make a I fascination just, around it. You don't want to, you want to have that diversified, you know, a balanced portfolio, not just throwing a lot of money yeah. at bad ideas and, and just believe in the hype. Just be able to peel back the onion a little bit. And go, That's probably not going to work out. It sounds nice in that PowerPoint, but is that sure someone is. that can build the tech? Can they build a company? Can they build a culture? Best tech in the Probably world the is not going to go anywhere if you don't have the right people backing you up. And that means a diverse, diverse workforce. You don't want to have you know, just one a company of you know recent graduates who don't know what the hell they're doing beside the, the product that right. they're trying to create. What the hell do yeah. I know? I'm a sociology major. Sounds like you know quite a bit and you have experience. And, you and I have the, the hairline to show. <laughs> you look great. Um, Six months from now, it's going to be all filled in. We'll see. Ooh, wow. Okay. I'll, um, I'll keep that in my back pocket for my friends of my age group who are curious. Um, but yeah, no, I think the, the VC approach and the hunt for the next Zuckerberg and looking for that specific prototype is really fascinating to me. And to your point, like the, the data shows that it's not typically those guys who win. And I also find it really fascinating to think of the concept of a woman trying to go in front of a VC like Sequoia dress like that or tantamount to that and ask no that would not fly (laughs) it would not happen we wouldn't even get in the door it's just it's so funny so it's a weird world out there man it is it's kind of fun though very it is kind of fun (laughs) i mean i feel like some of it yes other other parts not so much but we're gonna work on we got what we got we're gonna work with what we have so. Well, I say next time we talk about demographics, because I think that'll be a really interesting yeah. subject to talk about the aging of our country and how that is affecting the workforce. Yes. That'll be an well, interesting topic. To, I totally yeah. agree. And I, I'm very much a novice in that area. But what I do know is that that pyramid is going to flip, right? And we're going to have a much older workforce and we're going to necessarily have older people and applicants needing to fill those jobs, right? So it helps all of us if we start changing the way we we actually feel about older people <laughs> and yeah, aging uh, before we get there and need to i think develop, so. companies have to develop strategies around that what is our plan for the next 10 years what is the workforce going to look like right? what kind of jobs do we need that we're going to want to keep in-house either geographically in the u.s outsourced to the rest of the world and who we're going to do that with what's what issues are those countries facing i think we kind of touched on this earlier but you mentioned you know, a coder having skills in growing in his or her career, right? Maybe that seems a little bit more precarious for long-term career longevity, right? Long-term career. For career longevity, mm-hmm. because they might... Technology is changing at the speed of light, right? So these coders who are coming out of school 
have the latest and greatest that perhaps those who are, you know, aging might not in the same same way. So what is your take on, you know, how people can kind of buffer against that reality? Well, I think I forget what the age is where they've called you the digital only generation. Oh, digital native. Digital, yeah. Thank you. Digital, digital native. native. Yeah. yeah. Not exactly the most socially inept people. And even if you're just an individual contributor, don't you, aren't you most productive when you're collaborating with people on an hourly, daily, weekly basis? And if you don't have great no. social skills, you're not very interesting. You're not interested in other people. If you don't have those interpersonal skills, I, I have to believe it's limiting. I mean, people want to work with people they like. You're going to spend more yeah. time with your coworkers than you are with your own family, especially if you don't have a family. So I would rather have someone that is a, a 92 out of 100 at a skill set than 95. And I like that person. And they are interested in too. me. And you can develop a friendship. And then there's a trust. And then all of a sudden, I know in my life, I spend a lot of my non-working hours talking with my coworkers because they're my friends as well. And guess what? You inevitably talk about work. So my yes, employer gets five to 10 hours of free labor from me every you know, <laughs> every week because I'm talking to people that are truly my friends. I care about them. And we are building bi the business together. So yeah. maybe I'm projecting upon others. But I would argue that those that have good interpersonal skills will It'll help them grow into other roles, but also just be more productive as that, whether it's individual contributor or as, or some sort of manager. Yeah, I well, like that approach. And I think that as far as it goes in the field of coding and the more technical skills in tech jobs, right? Like there are always going to be courses that you can take, different things that you can do to improve your skills, right? The soft skills are those that are learned over time. And some of them, frankly, are just kind of innate. You either got them or you don't, right? I agree. Um, so there's I agree. that element. <laughs> Diminishing returns on trying to take a course on oh, have a con yeah. having a conversation yeah, like or being EQ funny. EQ 101. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I do think that your point is valid in the sense that if you have a community at work, you're less likely to uproot yourself in that, right? Like that is staying power yeah, in and of social itself. Social cohesion, you know, I've yeah. definitely stayed at companies. If I hadn't had the friendships, I would have left. But these are people that I just liked being in the foxhole with, you know, just, yep, yep. just became my my people. And that's what goes oh, on. I totally way. agree. <laughs> It really does go a long way. And I think of how I frankly survived parts of the pandemic. And a lot of it was those relationships that I had at these various companies. And and even though some of them were fostered 100% online, much like ours, actually, I've never met you in person. Um, you know, That's true. Huh? I forgot about I that. Know, isn't that funny? <laughs> it's like, it's so bizarre. Um, I actually had an old colleague of mine reach out and, and extend to me a job offer. And I consider him a friend. And then I realized, and, and I still, of course, do. But I realized I've never actually met him. <laughs> like, it's so yeah. weird. Such a weird world right now. Um, but, you know, the pandemic the pandemic was just such a disaster on a micro and macro level. But I do think that there are some good things for us that came out of it. One being your talent pool has extended massively from what it used to be, right? Like, you have the ability to hire people from anywhere. Um, but that also comes with a cost. And I think the cost is that there is less of that community building aspect, like social co cohesion that keeps people at companies. So it'll be interesting to see what trends kind of emerge and how many people are going to have the return to office plans actually put in place. And, you know, it's, it's it just opens up a lot of different societal issues, right? So I'm going to be fascinated to see how it all unfolds. So the pandemic wasn't good for you? No, it wasn't. <laughs> oh. This is the best for me. Best no. thing ever happened to me. 
Got me really? the best job I ever had. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Tell that me about that. That's a happy, happy, joy, joy story. I love that. I'm the only one that has a good story for uh, for COVID. That's I mean, that's probably not fair. <laughs> I, I think I'm an extrovert and the pandemic killed me pretty much. See, I'm an um, introvert, was, so it didn't bother me Oh, so you're me like, this is, this is my <laughs> My husband's an introvert, and he was like, oh, oh my God, amazing. He was thrilled. But for yes. me, I felt like I was dying a slow death every day and had such Zoom fatigue, and I just missed human interaction. Like, I can tell you, I actually longed for the days where I could go to a conference. Like, that is how much I missed the real world. I longed for a conference. Well, after Rock. a certain period, after a year, I was in the same boat. You know, getting that shot, getting that stab in my arm as soon as I could so I can get in the airplane to get into the conferences. Mm -hmm. But in the very beginning, I was doing a horrendous commute, horrendous commute, having worked from home for a long time, almost 10 years. And then to have to go to commuting, to working for a poorly run company, wanting to leave. And then pandemic hit. And then I went from being gone from like six in the morning till eight at night to a normal, you know, eight to five. And it gave me time to think, to contemplate what's important in life. That position definitely was not. And then to reach out to my network <laughs> and As create a, a position not, not for myself. <laughs> no, no. I went from not a great job to a fantastic job. And if it weren't for COVID, awesome. that would have happened. And yes, definitely. I like having those beers with a friend or a colleague in person over dinner or whatever. But this this still works with my colleagues. You may see them That's once great. a quarter. But talk to him every single day and keep that relationship going. I mean, I hired two people without even meeting him in person. It was just yeah. over the phone and Zoom. You know, eventually yep. you'll you'll get there. But yeah, you're not the first person I think of. Like, haven't I met Maureen? I guess you're technically <laughs> in that conference room when I when I was in in person. <laughs> so funny, right? Um, hilarious. But yeah, no, I was not there physically. No, bizarre. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting too because I think the the fact that we did have the remote option it just enabled a lot more people to get into tech who otherwise might not have joined right you know it's people in different geographic regions people were also able to change their lives move into a new place that had a lower cost of living or do the whole digital nomad thing if you don't have kids weighing you down right yeah. um it, it just it, it really expanded people's horizons and i think all of that is super compelling and great and I hope that we don't see too many tech companies that are going to toe a hard line when it comes to return to office. But interestingly, I think actually my personal suspicion is that a lot of these layoffs are also just frankly an attempt to recalibrate the power structure between employer and employee because employees grabbed an inordinate and extraordinary amount of power over the pandemic. And employers are like, hell no, we want that back. Let's let's write the, you know, the, the balance back to what it used to be, right? And I, I do suspect that you know there is a huge element of that. And not only that, there are so many jobs that cannot be filled in tech, and yet they're still laying people off. Couldn't you retrain some of the people you're going to lay off and fill those roles with them? Like again, it goes back to sort of the concept of people not actually being very thoughtful in these approaches. It's just this kind of knee jerk. Let's just can a bunch of people, right? Well, you just described like a nuanced strategy, not you got 90 minutes to make these life-altering yeah. decisions. That's, that's a spectrum right? right there. They're on one side. You and I are talking about the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It just, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how this all ends, right? I think it's honestly, I think it's when you start having kids. That's really what it feels like to me when you're, when 
you need to talk about, I need to be done by five o'clock or I need to take off early or I need to drop off my kids five days a week. I think that that's when people start going, oh, you're not in it to win it. You're not here in this little startup and just live and breathe and stay having those beers at the end of the day. I don't know about you, but when I was single, every single day, let's go out after Sign work. Let's up. go hang out. Yeah. You know, the headaches don't hurt the next morning. I've got you know, no, not beholden to anyone. Yeah. But I think once you get to the point where you're like, oh my God, I cannot wait to go home and go see my kids or just do that family thing where you're not even thinking about work on the weekends. I think in my mind, that's where it starts becoming a little bit, I don't even know if ageist is the right word, but I think that's a nice proxy for it from, yeah. you know, young, you're in this, this startup or this fast paced tech, friends working for big companies that are working a lot of hours and it's, it's a grind on them. They have no time to themselves. It's either work or whatever obligations they have with their family. And it's just painful for them as well. I think, I think there's a lot of flexibility for a lot of companies for what people want. And that's where I think COVID was the best thing since sliced bread for a lot of people that went from that <laughs> horrible commute, that visibility, that need to be in a, a butt in a seat. Button and seat. That's not, oh my gosh. Not, yes. not productive. You know, that's what I was dealing with. They were judging me on how many hours I was there. Meanwhile, I if you just that. knocked off three hours of my commute, I'd put th- literally put three hours back into work. Still yeah. a net win for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's a net win on a lot of factors, right? Like I always think about the environment probably benefited greatly. Mother Earth from us not commuting in our cars for two hours a day, right? Like that's that's another huge win for companies that claim that they care about that, right? So um, I'd love to see. (laughs) Oh yeah, mental sanity. I mean, although I will tell you, as a parent myself, sometimes I think a commute sounds real nice. Yeah, twenty minute commute, go away. Yeah, exactly. No kids knocking on the door. Yeah, it's like a long time. It's kind of lovely. But, you know, I, I also value the ability to wear pajamas from the bottom down. That's pretty cool, too. Right. So yes. solid. Um, yes. But it's just I, I, I changed from pajamas at around two o'clock today. Just so you know, solid. 6 a.m. calls till two. And here we are. I actually am wearing here jeans right now. Wow. I know. Nice. I know. Fancy. Fancy. Thank I feel honored. I feel honored. Thank you. Did it for you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today at It Gets Late Early. I hope this episode was insightful and entertaining. Now, before you go, if you're old and work in tech, just like me, I have something really cool for you. We're putting together a job board specifically for seasoned tech workers, where we'll curate the best opportunities for experienced tech talent. If you want a place to look for work where you can trust there won't be so much bias in the hiring process, go to itgetsleteearly.com and sign up so you'll be the first to know when we launch it. Thanks and see you next time.